This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Um, would y'all turn with me to, to 1 Corinthians 5 this morning for the scripture reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read, we'll read the first eight verses. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Would you stand? Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are really, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Father, again, we love you and come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I'm asking now that you grant understanding of what has just been read here. Lord, um, we pray that You open our hearts to this truth, that we would understand what it, what it means to en- engage with You and as Your people in sincerity and truth. Lord, we, we pray that You not allow us to be distracted Father, that You keep us focused upon You and may our view of You continue to grow. Lord, may our dependence upon You continue to grow. May our love for You and for Your people continue to grow. Teach us how to live Christ-centered truth centered lifestyles. May it all be for Your honor and glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to kind of take this um, this chapter 
in two parts, um, one through eight that Zach just read, and then Lord willing, we'll come back to uh, finish tonight, nine through thirteen. But I'm also going to approach it in, in a couple of different ways here. We we have before us in this passage an example of what today we we refer to as church discipline. Something's gone wrong in the church, and we'll, we'll be talking about that as we discuss the passage. And, and Paul um, deals with it and demands that the church deal with it. What I want to do tonight is, is and it's going to overlap some, and we're going to, we're going to be talking about... Both aspects, really. But, but what, I'm, what I'm going to do tonight is, is put more emphasis on that. In other words, it's going to be a little bit more uh, maybe a technical approach. You know, talk about church discipline and, and, and the example that we have here in, in light of that. Now, that may not sound like an exciting thing to talk about. Um, and it certainly wasn't something that the Corinthian church was interested in doing uh, even though uh, it was required for them to re- operate in obedience to the Lord. Um, but but it, is, it is necessary um, that we, we think about these things and deal with them. So I want to I come at it a little more that way tonight. Um, what I want to do this morning, because, because Paul, is, is even though he's giving us an example, a real example from his experience, first century church experience, an example of church discipline. He's, he's not really writing this to the people at Corinth as an instruction manual for church discipline. He's not, not saying, okay, today's lesson is church discipline, and here's, you know, here's, how, here's an example in the church, and here's how we're going to deal with it. Um, he's just trying to get them back on track as a whole. You know, they, they are moving away from God's truth. And the fact that Sin is being openly allowed in the church is one symptom of that. And so Paul is just, is just simply doing what he's called to do. He's making a correction in the church in Corinth. And, and one thing I want us to notice here is, is that it is, in spite of what I just said, I'm not trying to contradict myself, but <laughs> he, he is correcting them. But one thing I want us to notice about his correction is that it's not just Him correcting them. He is demanding that they correct the situation. That's what He's calling for. Now, He does, you know, with apostolic authority, He does um, insinuate that He can come with a rod. That is, come to them with a rod of correction if, if, uh, if they don't get it together. Um, but, again... He is calling for them, the church, the congregation, to handle this situation. That's, that's, that's his whole um, thing here behind these, these verses that we're looking at. Not just him correcting, he's wanting them to correct it. So, so what I want to do this morning is focus a little bit more on the problem there, the seriousness, uh, along with that, the seriousness of sin. Because what, what is happening here is that sin is being taken very lightly. And in the course of that, 
by implication, Paul is saying, you're, you're not walking with the Lord in a manner that is consistent with sincerity and truth. You're not living, your manner of life is, is not according to sincerity and truth. And that's where he wants them. There, there are a lot of things that you, that you could say positively, believe it or not. I mean, we've tried to point some of them out. But there are a lot of things you could say positively about the Corinthian church. Paul opens up this letter saying some positive things about the Corinthian church and about their, their, uh, the extent of their gifting. And he thanks God that, that, you know, that they're not lacking in any, any, any area in, in regard to their, their gifting. But having gifts um, is, is not the primary thing in terms of living out the Christian walk or living out the church life. It is godliness. God-likeness. It is to conform to the image of Christ. And so it's not about hype, charisma, even dogma. It is about gospel-centered, and let me be clear on that. It is about gospel-centered sincerity. And that's why you don't just have sincerity. That's why Paul doesn't just say, uh, you know, that... Uh, what you need to be concerned with here is sincerity. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity. You know, giving the implication that as long as you're sincere, that's what people often say today. As long as you're sincere, that's what counts. But no, Paul says, with sincerity and truth. So, so the sincerity here is truth-centered sincerity. And the, and the two are, are uh, inseparable. There's, there's really no sincere worship of the Lord apart from God's truth. Um, there is no, um, you know, we've, we've been having some discussions in different uh, men's meetings and, and, um, and several of the, the, the meetings that we've had here recently. Uh, Brother Attaway has, has uh, made the statement several times that, you know, there is no other authentic religion than biblical Christianity. Now, that's, that's not a position that the world smiles on. But it is nonetheless true. And so there may be a lot of religions where there is great sincerity, but sincerity without truth is... Uh, is Useless. It's, it's, it's vanity. All right? So he's looking for and exhorting them to sincerity and truth. Now, I want us to think about a couple of incidents here. Um, I'm going to give you a couple from the Old Testament or a few maybe, and then, and then from the New Testament as well that, that kind of, I think, help bring home this point of the, the seriousness of sin. And this is one of the, again, the major problems we have in the church today is that sin isn't taken seriously. Now, even before I go there, let me, let me say this. What, what is sin? Because that's not a popular word today. <laughs> and, and if it is, people have all kinds of 
Um, you know, even if people talk about it, they have all kinds of, uh, of, of oftentimes wrong concepts about it. You know, they, they genuinely tie it to a, a certain list of actions, and everybody kind of has their own list, uh, pretty much. I mean, there's some things that we, we pretty much all agree on. Um, but then, you know, beyond uh, those few things, everybody's kind of got their own list. And, uh, you know, what, what is sinful for one person may not be for another. I mean, that's kind of the way the world tends to look at it. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's the way the, the church tends to look at it. We just think in terms of a list. But sin is, is actually just rebellion against God. So it, it can manifest in many ways, but it's not so much the act. I mean, that's not the, that's not the heart of it. That's not the root of it. Sin is rebellion against God, and rebellion against God, in whatever form that takes, is an issue of the heart. In other words, if your heart is not right with God, then, then your actions, yes, will be sinful, but it's because your heart is sinful. And the Bible makes some shocking statements along those lines. It says things like, the plowing of the wicked is sin. Or even the prayer of the wicked is sin. Now, again, that's, that's just uh, so contrary to what we hear today. And we see all these studies about prayer and how effective prayer is even in making you healthy. And I've read studies like that, and they, and they never seem to have any uh, concern about who the prayer is to. You know, it's just prayer. Prayer. And even doctors now say uh, sometimes that, uh, they can see the difference in their patients that pray versus their patients that don't pray. And so, you know, we're sold the idea, even by the world, oddly enough, oftentimes, that prayer is important. Of course, again, as I say, uh, they don't want to talk about specifics, you know, about what kind of prayer, who to, or whatever. Just pray. Just pray, and prayer is important. But the Bible, again, says things like the prayer of the wicked is sin. So when a person who, who is in rebellion against God, that is, their heart is not right with God, even when they pray, they are sinning. So the Bible doesn't say that prayer is good for you. Just, you know, generally, just pray. Just, just acknowledge a higher being and pray. The Bible doesn't talk that way. Because, again, truth matters. So it's not, it's not the act of praying, it's the object. In other words, who are you praying to? That's the same way with faith. If the world speaks of faith with favor at all, it's, it's always just some kind of definitionless <laughs> idea of faith, Right? Just, just believe, you know. Just believe, and it's good for people to believe. And one of the uh, the uh, new atheists today, and I'm and uh, trying to remember which one. I, I think it was Christopher Hitchens, who who died recently, um, had made the statement that in his own observations, as he looked at Christianity, he seemed to be to him what he observed was that there was more of a faith in faith rather than a faith in God. I think Christopher Hitchens may have been on to something there. 
And so again, it's not just having faith, but it's who is the object of your faith? This tied to truth. There has it has to be faith with truth or prayer uh, grounded in truth. So it matters who you pray to. It matters who you believe in. But sin is just rebellion against God. And so even even very religious people um, can be totally given over to sin. False religions are, are examples of that. They may be devoted. They may be sincere in what they're doing. But there's no truth in what they're doing. Or you may have genuine Christians. And I think that's what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians. You, you may have genuine Christians who just aren't living the Christ-like life that they should. And they're allowing sinful ways to get a certain foothold in their in their life, to be expressed in their life. And it's, and it's, it's taken a, a prevalent place in the church so much so that they have a kind of indifference to sin. So there are some warnings about that in the Scripture. One of them is here. Let me mention a few others as I started to a moment ago. In Leviticus, um, the book of Leviticus, God sets up. You remember the story of God calling Moses, right? He calls, was it dying? Okay, the mic's about to give up the ghost, Michael. Um, I may need your help here. Uh, if you would, turn this one on for a minute, and, we'll, and then I'll, I'll switch this out. Leviticus chapter 10. This is one reason, brothers, that the Lord gives you a wife. If you have a wife. <laughs> All right, what happened? Another reason is, you know, the criticism after the sermon when, when we leave and we get in the car. But <laughs> now, even that is when it comes and is a real blessing. <laughs> Give thanks in all things, brother. <laughs> no, it is. That is very true, really. Um, so Leviticus 10, and verse 1. Now, and I'll get back to what I was saying in just a second, but let's read this. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. Now, here's the thing. You remember the story of uh, God calling Moses in the, in the desert when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush and told Moses, you know, he's going to use him to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Well, he also called Aaron, Moses' brother, um, to be uh, a priest unto him. And, and, and early on, you know, he said that Aaron would be a spokesperson for Moses. So Moses would speak uh, for God. God would speak to Moses, and then Moses would pass it on to Aaron. And Aaron would, would, uh, would deliver the message that God had given to Moses. 
Um, and, and so I, I don't know. It's hard to tell when you, when you read the accounts when Moses goes before Pharaoh. It, I mean, it looks like once they actually get rolling that M- Moses just does the talking, uh, which he didn't want to do to begin with. But maybe it was going through Aaron. But ultimately what happens is um, you, you know that Moses is leading the children of Israel. Well, he sets Aaron up. God sets Aaron up as a high priest. Special office. Aaron and all of his his uh, sons, that his descendants, male descendants, will be priest to the Lord. So you have the, the, the tribe of Leviticus is set apart. The whole tribe, Aaron, Aaron the tribe that Moses and Aaron were from, uh, the whole tribe is set apart as priest to the Lord. But only the sons of Aaron can, be, can operate as high priests. And so they would actually, um, year by year, go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, here... Two of Aaron's sons are, are ministering in the temple or in the tabernacle, which is what they're called to do. But in this particular instance, um, they are, they are um, conducting an offering, giving an offering that they've not been instructed to, to do. If you know anything about the Old Testament Levitical uh, priesthood and the, and the the sacrificial system and the worship—it it was very meticulous. You know, I mean, every, they had all of these certain things that they had to do at certain times, and everything had to be done certain ways. You had to follow instructions. And it seems like here, though, we're not given much detail, but they just take it upon themselves to do this and offer this what the Old King James calls strange fire. Or, as I read here, unauthorized fire. That is, this is this was an offering that they were not commanded to do. And they just presumed to go before the Lord and do this. They're, I mean, they're probably thinking, well, this, is, this has got to be okay because, after all, we're appointed priests. We're called to this office. Although what they're doing here is going beyond what the Lord has instructed them to do. Now, notice verse 2. They go and offer this unauthorized fire. And then verse 2 says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is his brother, and it was Aaron's sons that just were consumed by fire from the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who draw near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. He didn't talk back. He didn't have a reply to that. So even though they were appointed to the priesthood, and, and in one sense they're just going about fulfilling their office, they went beyond God's instruction and, and decided to just you know kind of do an offering of their own. And God consumed them with fire right there on the spot. Another example in Joshua 6 is when the children of Israel went into Jericho and they, they overthrew the city of Jericho and God had told them to take all of this spoil and it, it would be devoted to destruction. 
So referred to as the, de- the, the devoted things there. That is devoted to the Lord for destruction in battle. So in other words, none of the soldiers in this case were allowed to take any of the spoil. And when they would go in and raid a place like that, a lot of times there would be you know, valuables, um, sometimes livestock, sometimes other other uh, things that they they would uh, obviously you know they would they would want. I mean it would be increase their wealth, but they're they're they are denied um, the right to do that here. God says everything's going to be devoted to destruction. But there's this one man Achan who takes it upon himself in battle to take some of the spoil to his own house. Now one of the interesting things here is that the Lord says, if you do this, if, if you, He warns them beforehand, if you do this and you bring those devoted things, those things that are devoted to destruction, you bring them back into Israel's camp, then you make the camp of Israel a thing devoted to destruction. Now, I said Joshua 6, and there's where um, verse 18, uh, you have some of the instruction You get in the right place here. Joshua six eighteen. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and bring about and bring trouble upon it. And this is exactly what happens. It's what Achan does. You get down into chapter seven, and that's exactly what Achan does. Now, what is the result of that? Well, uh, Achan doesn't come clean initially, and, and so the Lord says, you bring all of the tribes before me, and I'm going to single them out, first by tribe, then by family, and, and then we're going to get down to, in other words, the Lord is saying, I'm going to reveal to you, Joshua, who, who did this thing. And so Joshua does that, and Achan's tribe is singled out, and then Achan's family is singled out, and then eventually Achan and his immediate family is singled out, and then... Then comes the confession. If you look in chapter 7, verse 20, Achan says to Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak and shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Did exactly what the Lord had forbidden. And he, and he knew what he was doing. And so Joshua sent messengers, and they found that it was just like Achan had said. In verse 25, Joshua speaks back to Achan, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. That is to the day uh, this was being written. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Achan disobeyed the Lord, suffered Consequences. 
Another one that comes to mind, 2 Samuel, and there are many examples. 2 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah, David desired to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and eventually build a, a house for it there. And if you uh, remember the Ark of the Covenant, that, that, that was essentially God's throne here, here on earth. Not that God really has a literal throne here on earth, but that represented the presence of God. So you can say it's essentially God's throne. And when they, when they moved the tabernacle around as they traveled in the wilderness and in, then into the promised land, they had in that one room, the Holy of Holies that I mentioned earlier, the Ark of the Covenant, where the very presence of God was manifest. And only one person was allowed to go into that room, and only once a year. And that was the high priest. And if anybody else presumed to go in there, they would be immediately struck dead, because that place was holy. And so David wanted to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And he ordered that that be done. And all of the priests and the Levites, and remember, they're the only ones that are allowed to, to do the temple or tabernacle, tabernacle ministry. As I mentioned earlier, these are uh, Levites. They knew that there was a specific way that the ark was to be moved. It had little, it had rings on, on the four corners of it for them to slide poles through. And they were instructed by the Lord to carry it on foot. So you've got men on each corner, on each end of the two poles, on each corner. And that's how the ark was to be moved. Well, David ordered the ark to be brought to Jerusalem and the Levites loaded it up on a cart. pulled by an ox, which they were forbidden to do. And as they were going along, they hit a bump and the cart shook and it looked like the ark was going to fall. And Uzzah reached up to take hold of the ark to keep it from falling. And immediately, God struck him dead. Second Chronicles chapter 26 and needless to say, everybody, including David, <laughs> was in great fear of the Lord at that moment. But they had violated God's presence, God's instruction, disobeyed God's instruction, and violated the ark by touching it, which they were not allowed to. To do. One more. In Acts chapter 5, so shortly after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the New Testament church is brand new at this point and it is growing like crazy. And because there was poverty in the church, among the members of the church, and there are thousands of members of the church now in Jerusalem. And because some were in poverty, they would uh, other members of the church would, would bring possessions. They would sell possessions and sell land and houses and bring the money to the apostles. And the apostles would take that money and distribute it to those who had need so that there would be some equality in the church. So those who, who had things, who had wealth... You know, they would share in that way. 
voluntary. This is not a, not a commune. It's not a communal type thing. But they would sell possessions, land, houses even, so that the poor could be cared for. Well, here was a man in Acts chapter 5 named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Verse 1 says, They sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter, that is the apostle Peter, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, Peter's saying, it was your land, it was your property, you could have done whatever you wanted, you didn't have to sell it. You decided to sell it to give the money to the poor. You, you could have given a portion. You could have done whatever you wanted to do with it. What he did was lie. Not only to Peter and the other apostles, but he lied to God by doing that. In other words, he told them he sold the land and that he was giving the whole of the money that he made from it to the apostles to be distributed. He had lied to God. And so Peter says again in verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Notice the source. You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. In other words, he dropped dead. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After, verse 7 says, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, and this is Peter speaking to Sapphira. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. In other words, again, she dropped dead. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I guess so. Um, isn't it amazing the extent that we go to oftentimes to get people in the church and the things that were taking place here um, were not things that you would think of that would draw crowds, right? People dropping dead down at that church, you know. Not, not going down there. Now, I know we took a lot of time doing that, but all I wanted you to see there was how seriously God takes sin. Now, keep that in mind in these next few minutes as we consider what's going on here in Corinth. Paul first speaks of another report that he has received. We saw some of that earlier on. Reports came to him of the division that was among them and so forth. Now, he says... It has actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That is, among the congregation. 
And that's who we're talking about here. It's the, the church at Corinth. It's the congregation at Corinth. It has actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, the word here translated sexual immorality, some, uh, sometimes translated fornication. Uh, and the reason it's translated sexual immorality in the ESV is because it's just a, uh, a general term for all manner of illicit or immoral sexual activity. And it can include things like homosexuality, can include adultery, premarital sex, any kind of sexual activity outside of the boundaries of the marriage of one man and one woman. Is that clear enough? (laughs) Because anything other than a marriage between one man and one woman Anything other than that is outside of the bounds that God has permitted for sexual activity. So anything, anything outside of those bounds could fall under the term that Paul uses here, porneo. It's where we get our word pornography, sexual immorality. Paul says, it's happening among you. He says, I've received a report that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, I want you to notice something here. This this sexual immorality and, and, uh, well, it's all bad, but I mean, you're going to see what he describes here. Most people would think of as just heinous activity. But Paul does, doesn't really focus in on that or even upon the person committing that. He, he deals with them, don't get me wrong, but, I, but his main emphasis here seems to be on the congregation and the fact that they are allowing this to happen. Now, that's what Paul is, is targeting. In other words, just like we saw with with Achan, their sin in the camp. And nobody's dealing with it. Now, what's the specific sin that's taking place here? It's reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. So, before he even tells us what it is, Paul says, it is so bad that even the pagans don't tolerate this. This isn't even something Paul is saying. This is, isn't even something that is considered the norm in the, in the world out there. And, and that's saying a lot because the society that this city was part of in, in Corinth uh, was noted for sexual immorality. There, there was a turn to Corinthianize which became popular in this ancient society. And that's, and that's what it meant, sexual immorality. I mean, they used the name of these people to describe sexual immorality. So this, this was not uh, a moral society. So, so when Paul says this, he's saying, like, even the pagans don't tolerate what's going on among you. For a man has his father's wife. 
incest. Now let that, let that sink in for just a moment. Paul's saying this is happening among you, the congregation. Now, if that's not shocking enough, look at the next line in verse 2. And you are arrogant. Now, I'm going to be honest here. It's, it's, it's hard to know exactly how to, how, how to tie that in. In other words, exactly what, is, what does Paul mean by that? He's already... This, this is the same word, puffed up, that we've already seen in previous chapters. So he's already talked about them being puffed up. Now, maybe he's got reference to that again here. In other words, he's saying there's sin in the camp. There's sexual immorality. And even in that condition, even with the sin, you're still puffed up in your attitude toward me. In other words, the insinuation would be, uh, um, it looks like this would be humbling. It looks like this would be shameful. Because remember in previous chapters, we've been talking about their attitude toward Paul, how they're puffed up, they're arrogant. That could be what he's saying. He may be saying you're, you're arrogant specifically in regards to this sin. In other words, they're, they're taking some pride in it. That's a possibility also, although it's a horrible thing to think about. But it is a possibility. I mean, they, they seem to be uh, adopting some kind of dualism here to where they think you know, it's okay to do certain things in the flesh and it won't affect your spirituality. We're spiritual, and the flesh doesn't affect the spirit, and the spirit doesn't affect the flesh. And we're going to see more uh, evidence of that as we get into chapter 6. But uh, that's also a possibility. He may be meaning you're puffed up about this particular thing, as shocking as that is. You're actually taking pride in it. It's like, well, you know, Paul, Paul believes in all of this purity and, you know, abstaining. From, uh, from these types of things. But we understand, remember they're adopting the wisdom of the world and all sorts of uh, notions contrary to truth. But we understand that we can actually engage in these things and still be okay spiritually. All things are lawful for us. They will... Paul will, will, will say, um, probably quoting them. You'll see that in chapter 6. So it may be the case that they're actually puffed up about this going on among them. Maybe a little both. Whichever is the case, Paul says that's the wrong response. Ought you not rather to mourn? He's saying you ought to be mourning over this. There's sin in the camp. God's, God's congregation is contaminated and you ought to be mourning And then, Paul says, now look, this has to be dealt with. It's very serious. Sin is very serious. So Paul says, now he gets down to the man who's guilty. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That is, put out from the congregation. Paul's saying, you can't, you can't tolerate this kind of sin in the camp. Remember earlier he said, don't you know 
that God's Spirit dwells in you. And whoever destroys the temple of God, God will destroy. Right? Amazing how similar that is to God's words that we read a little while ago back in Joshua. If you take the, those things that are devoted to destruction into the camp of Israel, you make the camp of Israel a thing devoted to destruction. And that's, that's what's happening here. If you're going to be indifferent to sin or even embrace it and be proud of it, You're destroying God's temple. And whoever destroys God's temple, God will destroy. And so Paul says, something has to be done. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, he's already been making the case, chapter 4. He's argued for his, his, uh, his apostolic authority. You know, they, we, we've, we've talked quite a bit about that. They are rejecting Paul and his authority. Well, he's made the he's made the case. He has set them right there. I mean, he's at least put it out there. Whether or not they accepted it, uh, we don't know totally. But he's at least put it out there. Here's the way it is. Now, in regard to this, and and will be some other things as we move along. But in regard to this situation, he's he's applying that authority. Verse three. Verse 2, he says, let the man be removed. And verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved. In the day of the Lord. A couple of things quick here that, that, that we're going to plan to come back and deal with more tonight. <clears throat> First of all, all right, we are our brother's keeper. And the church, that is every local church, has a responsibility to deal with sin in the camp. We're accountable to one another. You know, about a... About a, a, a Roughly a year ago, I mean, maybe give or take, you know, we, we adopted a, a, a new church covenant here. And the reason for that was not to enter covenant with one another, but to acknowledge the fact that we are in covenant with one another as the people of God. And the essence of the church covenant was that we are accountable for one another, right? Good and bad. In other words, we're, as, as far as what is often called formative discipline, we are, to, we are to encourage one another, we're to lock arms with one another and walk together and help each other and you know, steady one another and help each other grow, sure each other up. And in terms of corrective discipline, when there's a problem, we've got a responsibility to get it right. When there's sin in the camp, it's a serious thing and it's got to be dealt with. And so Paul says, 
I'm telling you, with all of the apostolic authority that God has placed upon me, put this man out. That is, out of the congregation, out of the fellowship. Now, we need to note a couple of things there. I know some of you are probably already thinking, that sounds awfully harsh. Let me just tell you, what would really be harsh and unloving and hard would be to ignore it. You know, just, just an analogy, I think, you know, if, if I were a doctor or a scientist, let's say, a researcher that had discovered a cure for cancer, and then I just sat back and watched people deteriorate and eventually die from cancer, it would be hard to see the love in taking such, such an action or non-action. I say, well, you know, I don't want to interfere with their life. I don't want to. I don't want to try to influence them. They need to make their own decisions. I'm, if I've got the cure to cancer and they've got cancer, the loving thing to do would be to share that with them. Give them the shot. Give them the pill. Whatever it is, right? Paul says in Galatians six. When, when one is overtaken in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering your own self. Right? So, we, we, we correct, but we do it in love. And, and while you may be thinking, this sounds harsh, let me show you that, that, that Paul's motive here is love. So, Paul says again in verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, and literally that's really being present. I'm not sure why they translated it this way, but it, it seems like the uh, uh, um, what he's saying is, and, and, I, and I don't know how to, to fully explain it because <laughs> I'm don't, don't, not sure I fully understand what he means. But what he's saying is, in a real sense, I am present with you. And he probably just means uh, through the unity that we have uh, by the Spirit of God, in Christ, because he goes on to say, uh, to speak of, of the, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, but he's saying, in some sense, I, I am, I, though I'm absent in body, I am present in spirit. And being present, I have already pronounced judgment. Now, notice that, church. Next to John 3.16, probably the most memorized verse by the world and by many Christians, is Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged. And one reason people are so quick to memorize that is because they think it excludes all judgment, which it does not do. It does exclude a judgmental attitude. It does exclude hypocrisy. It does exclude unloving self-righteousness. It does exclude those things. Don't be judgmental. Don't be condemning. But it does not exclude sound judgment. In fact, in that very same context, Jesus says, when He speaks of false prophets, and He says, you shall know them by their fruit. That takes judgment. Discernment. Alright, so, Paul says, I've already judged. I've already... Now, he, listen, He is calling for the church to do this. Nevertheless... 
He, know, he knows this is going on. He's, he, he's, there, in other words, there's not a doubt about what needs to be done here. He's not saying, you need to come together and take a vote on this. He's saying, you need to come together and get this done. This, this man has to be put out. Paul says, I've already judged. Now, he goes on to say, um, for though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And, if, and being present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, verse 4. When you are assembled, you the congregation, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now again, I want to come back to this tonight, but I want to just briefly touch on it here. When Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. That is not a definition of the church. He's not saying, here's what constitutes a church. Two or more gathered in my name. That passage, which again, Lord willing, we'll look at tonight. In Matthew 18, he is dealing with church discipline. Jesus is. And he is talking about the church enacting or exercising church discipline. And in that context, that is in the context of church discipline, Jesus says, when two or more are gathered in my name, that is, you're gathered together in my name to do my will under my authority, then, then I'm in the midst. When you're gathered together as a church body to take action against someone who has sinned, Jesus says, I'm in the midst. I'm among you. He gives the assurance. Two or more gathered for that reason, I'm in your midst. And that's what Paul has in view here. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my Spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. That's, those are, we don't have time to go into that, but that, those are some awesome sayings, brothers and sisters. He's talking about a power and authority. Delegated, yes. Delegated. But a power and authority present and active in the local church. And he says, here's what you're to do when you're gathered for that reason. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Real quick, and we're going to have to stop. Essentially, as best I understand it here, what Paul is saying is, and definitely he says this man has to be put out that much is clear. That is, he has to be removed from the congregation. We'll look at um, some more passages tonight. And he says it this way. You, you've got to turn him over to Satan. Paul himself has done this. He says, you, you turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, now what does he mean? And I, I don't want to get into a lot of speculation, but it's, this much seems obvious. He's basically saying, Turn him back out into the world. He's got to be put out of the fellowship. He can't be a part of the church anymore. As long as he's unrepentant, he can't be a part of the church anymore. You're turning him back over, turning him back out into the world. That is, into the realm of Satan. 
Now, again, without, without hopefully getting into a lot of speculation, I'll just say this. There seems to be an obvious, if you, if you think of the two realms here, two um, spheres, all right? The, the church would be that which is under the, the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a sense, the world is that which is under the control of Satan. Now, I don't mean that he has total sovereign control. He doesn't. He's, he's on a leash. He's, he only does what God allows him to do. But, Peter says, you know, he's like a roaring lion, roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may devour, takes captives at his will. All right? So, he is given a certain amount of control, allowed a certain amount of control in the world. That is, among those who are not saved. Who, who don't know Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, what you're going to do is turn this man over to Satan. In other words, you put him back out into the world. So he's out from under that umbrella, if you will, of the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very real and serious action taken on the part of the church. Again, Jesus describes it in Matthew 18. Paul describes it here. Now, why do that? Well, number one, because sin is so serious. Because God's glory is at stake. When church members are allowed to continue in unrepentant sin... Ultimately, it brings reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Now, people look at me or you or whoever it is, in this case, this man who's committing incest. People look at us and say, yeah, that's what a Christian is? That's what the church is about? That's a representation of Jesus? So, he's put out from the church to show clearly that that's not what Christianity is about. And that that is not, sin is not tolerated by the Lord, like we saw in the passages we looked at earlier. But it's also with a goal in view for that individual. And the goal is repentance. I think that's what Paul is expressing here in the latter part of verse 5. So you're delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And, I, and I, it seems to me, because of some of the examples we've looked at, that that could include physical death. In other words, Paul is saying, if necessary, turn that man out into the world. If necessary, it, it may mean his death, his physical death. So, we turn him over to Satan, knowing that it may even mean physical death, in order that, the rest of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, we'll have to deal with this tonight, but just in a nutshell, I think Paul is saying, we're doing this with the hope that he will repent with the hope that once the church expels him, he will realize the seriousness of his sin and repent 
and be restored. In other words, the object of church discipline are dealing with sin. God's dealing with sin among His people. It's not ultimately to destroy them. It is to save them from destruction. And so when the church takes action, disciplinary action, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not to mark somebody for destruction. You know, we're putting you out, condemning you to an eternity in hell. That's not the goal. The goal is always repentance and restoration. So even these disciplinary acts are motivated by love with the hope that the person ultimately will be right with God and enjoy eternal salvation. And by the way, if, assuming these are true believers, assuming this man is a true believer, even if turning him over to Satan results in his physical death, what that means is, is that the Lord takes him on to glory. So it's not destruction for him in an eternal sense. But it may be in a physical sense, in a temporary sense. I, uh, and this is just an assumption, but I assume from what I read, I, I don't, I, let me say it this way, I don't assume that Ananias and Sapphira were unbelievers. Seems to me that they were believers. And God took them out because they were they were giving themselves over to sinful ways. But the goal is always repentance, and the motive is always love. Now, having said all that, and again we'll try to come back and fill in some of the gaps tonight. So Paul says. Um, Boy, I don't even have time to do the analogy, but we'll deal with it tonight. But here's the bottom line. He wants us, our manner of life, to be characterized by sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. It is truth-centered, Christ-like, living for the glory of God. Which means putting away sin and pursuing Christ-likeness for His glory. Would you stand, please? Those are some hard passages to read. Not, not only the one we just dealt with in 1 Corinthians 5, but all the ones that we looked at leading up to that. And let me just say this. In case, to the... To the to the unbeliever, in case there's anybody in this room today that is not in right relationship with God. And I, I hope you will take this couple of things from this. One, God takes sin very serious. It's not a game with Him. It's not a light thing with Him. Rebellion against God. And again, we're not just talking about certain actions. We're talking about a heart that is not in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not given over to His Lordship. The end of that is death 
and destruction. Eternal death and destruction. Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And the wages of sin is death. And it is everlasting. To remain apart from Christ now is to remain apart from Him for eternity. There is no other option. There is no neutral ground. You submit to His Lordship now. Cry out to Him for forgiveness, which He promises to grant to anyone who will come to Him in faith. Seek His forgiveness and fellowship with Him now, and you are promised His presence for eternity. And to the believer, even though many of us, if not all of us, may, hopefully it would be all of us, but if not, many of us in this room are here today and we know Jesus. We're in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not because we're great, not because we're smart, not because of something we've done, because of what Christ has done for us. Nevertheless, I think that's the same position the Corinthians were in. So it's a warning for us to not get our eyes off of the truth. It's a warning for us to remain Christ-centered in our living. To pursue Christ-likeness. To live for the glory of God. So, in both cases, whether you're someone here today who does not know Christ, or whether you're a Christian here today who does know Christ but has allowed yourself to be distracted, in both cases, repentance is the answer. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. Restoration is, is, is always encouraged and promised. For the unbeliever, Acceptance by Christ is always promised. Jesus said that those who come to Him, He said, I will in no wise cast out. So I encourage you today, think about where you stand with God. What is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And I know I've kept you long. and I appreciate your patience. But these are important issues. As we close, think about it. And if you're not where you should be with Him, don't let another moment go by. Don't let another moment go by without getting that corrected. If you want someone to pray with you, I'm glad to do that. There's others here that would be glad to do that. Bob, Ron, Dickie. There's too many. There's a bunch in this room. Be glad to pray for you. But the main thing is that you go to Christ. Go to Christ. Go to Him and make sure. Ask Him if you don't know. Am I right with you? Do I know God in truth? Is my Christian walk about sincerity and truth, or am I deceived? Go to Him. 
Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we know that You are the heart knower. There's not a person in this room that can hide anything from You. Not a person on earth. You know everything there is to know about us better than we know ourselves. Lord, I pray, help us now to search our own hearts. Grant understanding so that we may see ourselves for who we are and what we are. And that we may see Christ, see You for who You are and what You are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.